You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. verses 1 through 11. If you want to take a minute and find that in your Bible, once again, Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's Word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon, the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to to betray him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad you're here to worship with us. We are uh, coming to the end of our sermon series uh, that is on the Jesus Storybook Bible, which are down here. And um, feel free to come get one if you haven't gotten one, adult or child. Um, I think it's one of the best introductions to the Christian faith, uh, to the meaning, meaning of the whole scripture. Its uh, tagline is, every story whispers his name. And it goes through multiple stories in the Bible, Old and New Testament. It just shows how each one of them points to Jesus. And I would say if there's one phrase that's central to the uh, Bible, it's the story of the Bible. It's uh, God's secret rescue plan. I keep talking about that over and over again. The secret rescue plan of God. And the secret rescue plan of God is to take this world that has fallen uh, into a world of domination. Uh, where everybody's trying to climb a pyramid. I call it the empire sometimes. It's like a pyramid where everybody's trying to get to the top and get people below them to serve them and look up to them and, and kind of using their power to dominate those below. And uh, it's, God takes that 
that domination that we have fallen into and he flips it over and now it's like a funnel where at the bottom um, the great ones exist, like the, the son of man himself, who is the servant of all. And the goal is to go down that funnel to be near the son of man, uh, Jesus Christ, God himself incarnate, who is serving everyone above him. Uh, so Jesus himself said, um, you've heard it said uh, among the great ones of the Gentiles uh, that you should lord your power over people. But I say to you, whoever would be great among you must be the servant. And whoever would be the greatest of all must be the servant of everyone. So in other words, your goal is to go down. And that's called dominion, is to get low and go to the bottom of the barrel and serve people above you. That's what Adam and Eve were created to do. They were, they were created to have dominion and to spread across the earth and spread God's creativity. And um, the empire took over, kind of like the galactic empire. And uh, the empire took over and then kind of pushed people down. And um, it is from that position at the bottom of the barrel, at the bottom of the fish tank where all of the crud develops, uh, that's where the Bible is coming from. So if you read the Bible, uh, it's not written by the victors. It's not written by people who've won. It's written by being, people who are being oppressed. Every single book of the Bible is written by someone at the bottom of the empire. And so um, this woman in this story is, is exactly like those people in the Bible. Um, in, in Luke 7.37, it's basically the same story. This story is told in multiple Gospels. And in Luke 7.37, Luke lets us know that this is a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life. Okay, so that's the kind of person that Christ comes to and lifts up and spotlights and says the kingdom is like this. And so the first thing I want to look about, uh, at is how the, the king, Jesus Christ himself, he cares about those who are poor in spirit. The first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. So he cares about the poor. That's the first point. But uh, the second point is he has this really interesting statement about the poor that's kind of disconcerting. I don't know if you noticed that when Caroline read the passage, but there's a statement about the poor that I've always been bothered by. So I want to look at not only that he, the king cares about the poor, but he cares about something more than the poor. It's not about rich or poor. It's not a Marxist document. Okay? The Bible is not something that would agree with Karl Marx as this constant class struggle between rich and poor. And we're supposed to be on the side of the poor to overthrow all the systems of, of the rich. That's not the Bible at all. The Bible is about worship and how uh, we are all created to worship God. And that's, that's something that's even bigger than the whole class warfare of rich versus poor. So first of all, let's look at the way God cares for the poor. So uh, if, you, if you look at this story uh, in the storybook Bible, it's called Washed with Tears. And it begins by saying, one night, uh, Jesus went to dinner at an important leader's house. And the important leader invited his important friends. And so that's a picture of the important leader and the important friends and the important people. And uh, we think that we really know uh, in, uh, in our spheres of influence um, who the important people are. Uh, we think we know where the halls of power are. So if you look at the verse, uh, verse 1 of Mark 14, it says, uh, Two days before Passover, there was a gathering of chief priests and scribes. The chief priests and the scribes were the people who thought they were having all the power. They, they were the people in ancient Israel uh, who were calling the shots. Or so they thought. So this would be like Wall Street or Washington, D.C., you know, Hollywood, the, the places that we would consider the halls of power. We think we know where those places are at the top of the pyramid. 
But in this story, literally, uh, spatially, this, this woman is at the very bottom. She's not only at below the feet of Jesus, under the table, she's, she's almost invisible. She's also behind his feet. So if you look at Luke again, Luke seven thirty seven, a woman in town who lived a sinful life came with an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind Jesus. So she's behind him at his heels and she was at his feet weeping. So she's practically invisible behind his back. She's at his feet. Not only is she invisible, she's actually a little too visible for her own liking because it says, again, Luke 7.39, uh, the Pharisees whisper to one another, does Jesus not know what kind of woman is touching him? So she is uh, infamous or notorious. She is um, known to be someone who is shameful. Uh, this is the way the storybook Bible says it. Um, how dare she? She's a big sinner and everyone knew it. Who does she think she is? So that's the way the important people talk about her. She's uh, a woman who is um, ostracized, uh, known to be uh, a nobody or less than a nobody. And uh, it's bad enough to go to a party alone. I mean, I, I hate going to parties alone. I almost won't even do it. But can you imagine going to a party alone where you're not invited and you're not welcome? So she's not even welcome there. And yet, um, in Luke 7.38, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair and kiss them. So, just this extravagant outpouring of love uh, for her Savior. And they treat her like a naughty child. They scolded her. It says that the important people scolded her. The religious leaders scolded her. And yet, Jesus, um, in verse 6, treats her like she's royalty. Like she's the Queen of England. He says, uh, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? What she has done is beautiful to me. So what they see as this socially embarrassing, cringy act uh, of humiliation, they see it as, as that, and he sees it as this beautiful thing. I was driving to Asheville yesterday, and I got right up to that mountain where Old Fort goes up to the top near Black Mountain, and the sun was just coming up, and so these trees that had formerly just been completely dark were now like, they just burst into color, like reds and yellows. It was absolutely gorgeous. And what they see is something that is ugly and uh, kind of something you should turn your eyes away from. He looks at that and he says, that's beautiful. That to me is like a, is like a mountain sunrise. Uh, he's kind of mesmerized by her poverty and spirit. This is what Jesus says in, uh, in the storybook Bible and the picture is of these three very important people. And there she is at his feet, washing his feet with her hair and her tears. And he is looking down uh, and just smiling, um, taking it all in. And it, it says, uh, this is what Jesus says. She knows she's a sinner who needs me to rescue her. That's why she loves me so much. You look down on her because you don't look up to God. And I think that last part is so critical that we... We, look, we are so busy looking down because we don't, we don't look up to God. We, 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 we're so full of pride. We want people to look up to us. We want to be famous. We want to be well-known. We want to be someone whose name uh, kind of is in lights, like an actor or a great singer, or having a bunch of likes, literally, on your social media. Uh, we are always looking for... We want our name to just um, continue down through the years. You know, I want Ben Milner to be a name that is 
like on a, a church's, uh, you know, like at the foundation of a church, it would have like Ben Milner Memorial Church or something like that. We want our names to just continue uh, to shine. And um, Jesus completely redefines what fame is. And he says um, in verse nine, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told. And it is being told right now. So it's actually been proven to be true. Who would have ever thought that when he said that, who would have thought that when Mark wrote that, that that would actually come true? I mean, Mark wouldn't have thought that in the year 2022 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, this story would be told literally where the gospel is being preached. So it's an incredible prediction of what's happening right now. But it's also Jesus redefining what fame is. And he's saying fame uh, are, are things, these little tiny things that happen underneath at the bottom, like on the floor, where people are cleaning on the floor. That's where fame is happening. And that's what is going to be highlighted in the future. That's what's beautiful. And the, the king of kings treasures the smallest little efforts of his weakest children uh, to please him. He treasures those things. Verse 8, she has done what she could. In other words, she didn't have a lot, but she's done what she could. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we have the same glasses you know, as he does? Do we see the world with these, uh, these glasses of the kingdom where we see people rightly? Where we see what true beauty is? And it's not external. Our eyes are drawn to external beauty. Jesus did not see things that way. And do we really understand what fame is? Do we rightly appreciate who the famous people are going to be? People that the world sees as shameful or embarrassing or noxious or unattractive. They talk too much. Uh, Jesus loves people um, who the world has discounted. People that are not exciting, they're not interesting, they're not stimulating. You might want to talk to them, but those are the people that Jesus loves. Like this woman. The, I think the most accessible work by C.S. Lewis, if, you're, if, you, if you have somebody that you know that, uh, that doesn't really believe but uh, is interested and um, might like a really short, it's kind of like a, a novella, very short novel. It's called uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And I uh, highly recommend that. It's about uh, C.S. Lewis when he dies. It's kind of this uh, fantasy of how he goes to hell. And then he gets on a bus to go to heaven to see what it's like up in heaven, to decide whether he wants to stay there or not. And so uh, he comes into heaven, and he's, he's just at the foothills of heaven. He's not up into the high hills. He's kind of down in the, in the foothills, and everything's very heavy. He can barely stand to be there. Like, he feels like a ghost. He's so flaky and flimsy and like misty compared to the power of the rivers and even the animals and the grass. He can barely stand on the grass. But he comes to this area where there's this gorgeous woman. And um, her name is Sarah Smith of Golders Green. And I've been to Golders Green. It's a suburb in London. It's very boring. It's a very boring suburb. It's a very boring name. So his point is that take the most boring person you know, the most ordinary, typical person you know. And this is the way that uh, she is described in the book. Bright spirits danced around her and scattered flowers at her feet. Youthful singers and musicians and animals processed before her, and her joy shone through her clothes. And then the traveler, uh, C.S. Lewis, asks his mentor, George MacDonald, who was the biggest influence on C.S. Lewis, uh, he asks, 
Uh, was she a person of particular importance? I, did, I don't recognize her. And this is what George MacDonald says. She was not important in your world, but in this country, she is one of the great ones. And that's why I just challenge you to think about uh, who the great ones are in the kingdom of God. Um, the ones who serve the most people, uh, the ones who least care about being seen and noticed. I love how Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are so concerned about wealth and status. And the rich Corinthians even have a meal before church to exclude the rest of the people in Corinth. And uh, they're so status driven. They're so image conscious. And Paul says to them, look, uh, you're new creatures in Christ. Okay. From now on, you should regard no, no human being from an earthly point of view, from an empire point of view. Um, that's, what, that's how he once regarded Christ. But now that we see Christ for who he is, we need to see everyone for who they are. We should look at people from a totally different point of view. So who do you, who do you approach um, in times like after church or before small group or maybe at a party? Who do you gravitate towards? You know, are you seeing people the right way? The king cares for the poor. That's the first point. But uh, the second point And this is challenging, but he cares for something more than the poor. It's so easy for us as Christians to think that the highest value of the kingdom is that we take care of people who are in need. And that is not the highest value of the kingdom. That's very important, as I've just said. But look at what she does in verse 3. She comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. It's like a total waste of money. It's like what Austin was saying. Like we take the money out back and we burn it. It's completely irresponsible. It's grossly irresponsible. It's financial mismanagement. And yet uh, Jesus absolutely loves it. So the second point, he, he cares for something more than the poor. Namely, he cares for worship. Namely, his own worship. The worship of him. So um, nard is very expensive, very rare. Even today is rare. And an alabaster flask was an appropriate thing to carry nard around in because it was very expensive too. So it's this priceless family heirloom, maybe the, the main source of wealth that the family had. It's maybe her inheritance. So it seems like a, an impulse move, like she had a lack of impulse control, which is why they were so indignant. And they said, and this is in the storybook Bible again, um, everyone gasped, what a waste. To pour that over someone's feet, such expensive perfume, and they publicly rebuke her for doing it. This is in uh, verse 5, Mark 14, 5. What she has could have been sold for over 300 denarii. And that's a year's wages. That's a year's wages. And given to the poor. And you know, when you say given to the poor, it's like the ultimate Christian trump card. If you, it's like the moral trump card. If you give the money to the poor, well, nothing is more important than giving money to the poor, right? And the answer is wrong. This is where he says this really disconcerting thing that is hard to come to terms with. But you know, when you hit something in the Bible that's disconcerting, that you should really, that's where you should concentrate. It's not the parts that you understand easily that should be the focus of your attention. It's the ones that you don't get. Like the really hard sayings. Think about those things. And this is one of those sayings. Verse 7, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. 
And again, you, I mean, you ask yourself, did he not care for the poor? And of course he did. That was the whole first point. Not only did he care about the poor, he's actually encouraging them to care for the poor. Verse 7, you can do good for them whenever you want. He's being a little bit cheeky there. some irony in that because he's basically saying, probably not very often, but whenever you want to, you can help the poor. Not expecting that you'll do that. But then he says, you will always have the poor, but soon you will not have me. Because guess what? I am about to die for you. I am the son of God who has come here to die for you. And what she did is she anointed me for that death. She is preparing my body for that burial that is of infinite worth. So it's not that, again, it's not that the poor are not important. I think you hear me say that. Uh, It's more like Jesus is more important. And in the worship of Jesus, you cannot spend too much money worshiping Jesus. You cannot value what he has done for us and dying for us too much. It's impossible. Um, Revelation 4.10, this is a a picture into uh, what is unseen. This is a pulling back of the unseen world. And it's, it's right now. And the book of Revelation is right now for what's happening behind the scenes. And the behind the scenes, pulling back of the veil, this is what's going on right now. It says that 24 elders are constantly falling down before God. And they're casting down golden crowns. Those very valuable golden crowns. They're constantly falling down. And they're throwing their crowns down. And they're saying the slain lamb is more worthy than these. You are more glorious than these. And what we're trying to do right now, this little group of people gathered here, is we are trying to approximate the 24 elders and what they're doing in the unseen realm. And anyone that knows what they're talking about, namely the 24 elders and the angels and archangels and the four living creatures, uh, anyone that knows what they're talking about would know that what life is about is, is simply this, is to is to worship God. And um, what we're doing here is, you could almost say, is a royal waste of time. Um, it doesn't make any sense. And yet it is, uh, it is the most important thing we do each week. And I know that um, people are tempted to say, well, I could worship God in a mountain um, with greater feeling. I feel his presence more um, when I'm hiking or when I'm camping or when I'm alone um, just by myself, my quiet time, I feel his presence more. Or my small group, it's like I know these people, I can talk to them, I can share real things. Whereas I come here and it's kind of stiff and I'm not very well known. Or I don't feel like people know me. And yet, uh, the essence of being a member of a body of Christ is worshiping God. Like this is what we do that no one else does. This is our calling card. This is our secret sauce. This is, this is the thing that we do and it might not feel like much. But uh, this is the heart of our mission as a people, is, is simply to come and worship him. You know, people sometimes say, well, they, they just go to church. They're not really that serious about their faith. They just go to church. As if just going to church. It's not just going to church. It's coming uh, to worship the triune God, the living God, who all the angels and arch, archangels and the four living creatures and all the animals ever made bow to him. That's the purpose of the whole creation. Um, we don't produce anything in this service. Nothing is made by us. We don't achieve anything at the end of this service. Uh, You don't put anything on your resume by coming to this service. In some ways, we're not helping anybody right now. And yet, the chief end of a human being, the main reason for which we exist, the main reason on earth is to worship God. 
And that's what this is saying. This woman takes everything she has and she breaks it. She is poor and she breaks it. And he doesn't say, stop doing that. You need to eat. He says, this is a beautiful thing. I love this. This is not wasteful to me. You know, God did not deliver Israel out of Egypt for political freedom. He did not deliver Israel out of Egypt so they could vote, so they could have voting rights. He did not deliver them out of Egypt to have human rights or to have a very large GDP. You know, it was not to have a great economy or lower taxes. He did not do that. He, he liberated them out of Egypt so that they could worship God in the desert. And, and over half of Exodus is simply a description of the tabernacle that they built. You know, the first half we love, the second half of Exodus is like all this crazy stuff about the tabernacle. It's all because he wants to be worshiped because that's the goal of everything. And sometimes I ask myself, what is the purpose of this church? What are we doing? Why do we get, like, who are we? What are we doing in Winston-Salem? What is our, in what way are we helping Winston-Salem? And I would just say at the heart of that answer, it's not the whole answer, but at the heart of the answer is that we're worshiping God. That we're simply a faithful presence of God here worshiping God. And that does something. Um, It doesn't have to do anything, but it does do something. It has a massive impact. So here's the purpose of Salem. This is how the story of the Bible puts it. The woman knelt down before Jesus like he was the king. Uh, She held his feet in her hands and started to cry. And tears fell onto Jesus' feet. And she washed them and she kissed them. And dried them with her long, dark hair. It's just an extravagant form of devotion and adoration to the king. And it puts me to shame, frankly. Like, where is my devotion to Jesus that's like that? I mean, where, where do I have that overwhelming abundance of feeling? Can you imagine putting yourself out there uh, to worship Jesus like that? You know, you say to yourself, I say to myself, well, I'm just not an expressive type person. You know, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian, so I'm not highly expressive. That's not my form of worship. And then somebody would say, well, yeah, but I saw you at the Paul McCartney concert and your hands were in there and you're waving your hands and singing Hey Jude at the top of your lungs. So I think you probably are expressive. It's just not here that you're expressive. And that's, that's truly a rebuke to us that we, that our feelings do come out when we really care about something. You know, at the Wake Forest Clemson game, and we took a lead on Clemson, and I thought we were going to win that game. I, was, I had sprained my ankle that morning. I was hopping around on one of those metal bleachers, endangering my ankle and high-fiving strangers and just screaming because we were winning the game. And again, do you have any of that feeling for Christ here? And maybe it could be expressed without screaming, without hopping around, without high-fiving, but is it even there at all? And I'm not saying it has to come out in certain ways. But can you imagine just the adoration of this woman um, overflowing through your body and just taking over your body? And again, I don't know what you're going to do with your body when that happens, but can you imagine being so overwhelmed by the sacrifice of Christ for you that um, you're, you know, you're, you're literally, you just feel just a wash of passion through your body. Uh, verse 8, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Remember, 
We love these rascals.